Drifting in shadows And on this morning Bright though it be I feel those shadows That was Daniel O'Donnell easing us gently into Sunday morning with I Watch the Sunrise. The writer and entrepreneur Margaret Heffernan shares her lifelong passion for classical music with Michael Barclay, 
and describes how we can best prepare for an unpredictable future, a. by stimulating our curiosity, and b. by encouraging greater collaboration. You can hear the whole interview under Private Passions on the BBC Sounds website. Born in Texas, raised in Holland and educated in Britain, Margaret Heffernan has had a hugely varied career. She's been a high-profile entrepreneur and the CEO of multimedia technology companies in America. She's written plays and spent 13 years as a BBC producer. She's a professor of practice at the University of Bath. She's written seven best-selling and prize-winning business books. And her TED Talks have been watched by more than 12 million people. Underlying everything Margaret does are her unconventional, inclusive ideas about leadership, summed up by her motto, let's not play the game, let's change it. We could spend the next hour unpicking just that, Margaret, but in a nutshell... What would you say your philosophy is? I think my philosophy is that work is part of life, so you can't write about them or think about them separately, and that they're capable of infinitely more joy and reward and value than we typically manage to find. And so I'm constantly looking for how do we put more into the experience and get more out of the experience, not just for ourselves, but for everybody that we work with and work for. Do you think underlying all this is an intense curiosity about the world? Oh, insane curiosity. Absolutely (laughs) insane curiosity about the world, about people, about how ideas connect with each other, about how people connect with each other. But I think it's driven by a really fundamental optimism that everything we do could be better than it is, that everything that we produce could be better than it is. And, you know, that that's not a kind of critical voice. It's a kind of enthusiastic, rather energetic, possibly over-energized voice in my head. I've often thought that uh, a better word for intelligence would be curiosity, almost, but you might not agree with that. Well, I do, because I think one of the things that concerns me most with many of the business leaders that I work with is that, for the most part, they work such insane hours at such insane pace that they get the curiosity kind of beaten out of them. Mm. Many don't read They often say they have no time, you know, for things outside of work. And I think this shrinks their capacity and I think it hugely limits the organizations that they run. And your curiosity clearly extends very strongly to music because that's been a lifelong passion, hasn't it? It has. And, you know, my parents both came from desperately poor backgrounds and didn't have any real kind of musical training or knowledge. But they were very self-taught and very determined that my sister and I should have, you know, really rich, good educations. And so I started playing the piano when I was five. I sang very early in school. I've, you know, so music has been a very, very huge part of my life. And I have to say, kind of essential for my sense of, I don't know, optimism and and hope. And you've trained as a singer. Yes, I studied in Cambridge, Massachusetts when we lived in Boston after I stopped running tech companies. Then when I moved back to the UK, I was fortunate enough to study with the fantastic singing teacher Molly Petrie, who among whose students was Susan Chilcott. 
and it just gave me a, a whole way of seeing life through music as opposed to life through words, which is where I typically spend most of my time. We're going to hear music today from Beethoven, Miles Davis, Monteverdi, and the film composer Nick Bicar. But we're going to start with Cecilia Bartoli singing Vivaldi. As a singer yourself, indeed trained singer, what do you particularly love about this aria from his opera Orlando Furioso? Well, I really love Vivaldi, and I love singing Vivaldi. He just has such a gift for the writing for human voices. But what I particularly love about this, and when I first heard it on Radio 3, I might add, I did literally pull to the side of the road to write down what it was because I thought it was so heart-stoppingly beautiful. But I think what I particularly admire, not just about the music, but about the way that Cecilia Bartoli sings, is that it's an incredibly passionate piece and it's full of energy. But it is also delivered with such extreme restraint which is where its emotional power comes from and I think you know we live in a very shouty age and there's something profound here about the power of restraint Cecilia Bartoli, with music from the first act of Vivaldi's Orlando Furioso. We heard Jean-Christophe Spinozzi directing the ensemble Matteos with the flautist Jean-Marc Goujon. Margaret Heffernan, you've written about your father having a hyper-competitive, aggressive personality. Did you get on with him? Well, I did and I didn't. I mean, my father was a bully and a very difficult man and a very interesting man. But I, you know, I have huge affection for my father who got himself out of a desperately poor background with desperately unpleasant people and made a very good life for us in Europe. You devoted much of your life to explaining why collaboration in business, well, and indeed in life in general, is so much more productive than competition. How much do you think that's a reaction, perhaps, against your father's way of doing things? Very much so. I think, you know, my father was a very brilliant guy, and he could have done much more had he not competed with every single person he met. I mean, if he met someone who wasn't as clever as he was, well, they were clearly a waste of time. And if he met anybody that was cleverer than he was, well, he felt so threatened that he didn't want to spend time with them. And what that did was leave him terribly lonely. 
And I see quite a lot of people like this in all walks of life, and they can't quite figure out why they're so alone or why they can't get very much done. But their hyper-competitiveness really isolates them and cuts them off from knowledge, information, and I would say joy. Collaboration is fundamental to almost all music making. That's the wonderful thing about it. It's a conversation. And you spoke to the composer Nick Picar about this for your book, A Bigger Prize. What did you gain from talking to him? Nick is such a fantastic listener. And one reason I've loved working with him, but even more love being friends with him and with his family, is, you know, he has great curiosity, a very individual kind of train of thought, and he just listens better than almost anybody I know. And he also has a great sense of fun. We're going to hear music from his 2014 Requiem, which I think originated with one of your projects when you were a BBC producer and collaborating with Nick Bigar. That's right. I produced an insane 13-part series about the French Revolution for the bicentenary in 1989. And Nick did the music for that. And the film about Louis XVI, um, he wrote the music really as a requiem and then subsequently went on to develop it into a more fully-fledged requiem. I love this piece of music, partly because I think it shows great respect for an archaic tradition, if you like, but brings a really modern flavor to it. I'm a great lover of religious music, although I'm not religious myself. And I think there's something about this piece that is religious without being specific and without being wishy-washy. from the Requiem by Nick Bicar, performed by the Taverner Consort, directed by Andrew Parrott. Wow. <laughs> Just ex extraordinary singing, isn't it? Very exciting when uh, a living composer uh, writes something that means as much to you as that clearly does. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's not just because it's exquisite music and it's not just because it reminds me of a very heady, complicated time in my life. I think it just is so redolent of hope in eternity. And, you know, it really, I guess, speaks to me about how somehow we all stay in people's minds long after we're gone. And that was Margaret Hoffenen, and she was talking to Michael Barclay. Music, and I guess it's a case of compare and contrast 
with that in Paradisium, as Gaither's homecoming friends give us I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. Before me, and I 
Taylor's homecoming friends with a sing-along version of I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. Now it's back to music and it's under a grand out with Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.
guide has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 27. It's followed by the choir of King's College, Cambridge, singing an arrangement of the spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? A response to Psalm 27. Oh, let me see with his eyes from now on, whose gaze on beauty makes it beautiful, who looks us into love and looks upon his whole creation with a merciful and loving eye. My heart has said of him, seek out his face. I've sensed his bountiful presence, shimmering behind the dim veil of things. That presence calls to me, calls me to tremble at the brink and rim of lived experience, and then to free myself of fear, to trust him, and to dive right off that brink into his mystery into that deep and holy sea of love in which the living worlds all float and swim to dare each moment's death that I might live.
Barry Gentis lives in Cat Michael and is a member of Pitlochry Baptist Church. Today, Larry imagines himself to be the prophet Hosea. I like a good fight, always have. People tend to give me a wide berth because, frankly, I have a reputation for being somewhat unorthodox, and I'm in the midst of the most orthodox of people, the Jews. I love my God, though, and I'm following him the best I can, even if it doesn't spare me. In fact, especially if it doesn't spare me. Basically, he's God and, well, I'm not. My name is Hosea, and what I'm going to tell you may seem insane, but bear with me. Or if you can't bear with me, bear with my God, because he told me to do the things I'm going to tell you. A bit more background might be helpful, and here's one of my strongest held points of view. It's not so hard to forgive most things if the person is faithful to you. But what when they're not? (laughs) Well, that's a challenge. You see, if I was to make a list of priorities and what makes a person good or bad, well, faithfulness would be on the top of the list. I'm telling you this because we as Jews have been more blessed by God than anyone since Adam. Think of it. He crushes the mightiest nation on earth, the Egyptians, opens up an entire sea to let us escape them. Then, when they try to cross that same patch, God closes the sea on them and makes them history. Then, in the wilderness, God does miracle after miracle, even down to feeding us with bread from the sky. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said, from the sky. Water from a rock and, well, I could go on and on. Like I said... Faithfulness is high priority to me. You'd think at least the Israelites and the kingdom of Judah would be faithful to our God, but no, they'll carve figures out of stone and wood that never can speak or move, and they they worship these things. Yes, I said it. They worship these things, and they're ugly and distorted with twisted faces and deformed bodies, and that's my God? Aside from these gods being stupid as a plank, it's a lie. You're not going to tell me this stupid chunk of wood or stone created me or you or the skies and the rivers and trees. So God hates being compared to these idols that people create. When I was praying one day, God said something really strange to me. And this was it. Go take to yourself a wife of holotry and have children of holotry for the land commits flagrant holotry forsaking the Lord. So, let me get this straight. You already know that faithfulness is on the top of my list, yet you want me to marry a woman who distinguishes herself by an immoral lifestyle? How many men has she already slept with? How can I do such a thing? If that wasn't enough, he ordered me to raise up children with her. That's unthinkable. The problem was, I knew it was God's voice, and I had a choice to run away or do what he commanded. I also understood his message to our people, that he was showing them what it was like to be treated with contempt. I'd read in the Torah about another man who was commanded by God to do something, and he tried to run. (laughs) And boy, did he come up second best. So, uh, yes, I married a, well, I'll just say it, a prostitute. And since I'm an honest man, I'll tell you the whole of it. She wasn't uh, unattractive. So, all right, wipe that silly smile off your face or get thumped. Making the children wasn't uh, unpleasant, let's say. 
God revealed to me the names of the children when they were born. The first was to be called Jezreel, which means avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. The second born was named Lo-Ruhama, which means no pity. And the third born was Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. Well, needless to say, these weren't really word, these, these weren't names that I would have chosen for my children. But like I said before, God, he's God. Now, despite the bad circumstances of our marriage and the birth of my children, I, I loved them all. I loved my faithless wife, even though I knew that if I left her to her own devices for any length of time, she'd go after other men. My children were beautiful, surely taking after their mother. And they were just like any other children, playing, laughing, crying, and affectionate. I'm telling you this because one of the hard things I had to do was to tell everyone what the Lord was saying to them. And it involved prophecies using my children as examples. The Lord was telling my children to be contentious with their mother because of her infidelities and that there would be no mercy shown to them if she, the mother, didn't recognize God as a provider. I know that God was showing Israel and Judah the consequences of their worship of false gods. Like I said, I like a good fight, but the hardest lessons I've had to learn have been those requiring obedience. I'd like to soften it for you, but I can't. It means giving up something you want to do or even passionately desire and doing what someone else commands you to do. What's at stake here? Do you remember how our conversation started? The highest level of priorities for me is faithfulness, and the highest level of demonstrating faithfulness is obedience. If God told you to do something that you didn't want to do, and you knew it was from him, would you obey him? This is taken from Hosea chapters 1 to 3. Larry Gentis was the prophet Hosea. And you can read uh, Hosea's story in the book, just called Hosea in the Old Testament. Music now, and it's Sovereign Grace music, with some additional verses to an old song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes to the hills 
Alan Sorensen is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his God spots, and today he has one on email. Have you ever sent electronic mail? How does it work? You type a letter, press send, it disappears down the phone line and reappears on somebody else's computer. I think it must be Pixies. I know that's how video recorders work. There are video pixies who paint the pictures onto the tape and then it's played back. It's all done with pixies. Well, that's my theory. And in this day and age, anybody's theory is as good as anybody else's. Those of us in the church get really annoyed at all these fanciful claims made by weird and wonderful gurus and they get taken seriously. But the good side of that is, if everybody's opinion is valid, then our faith in Jesus, in prayer, in the Holy Spirit has just as much right to be heard as any other. So when you next hear about healing pixies or weather pixies or whatever, just speak up about Jesus. It's okay, don't be ashamed. May the blessing pixie visit you. Toodaloo the new. Alan Sorensen and his Pixies Theory. Here's Johnny Cash and he has a song which shows that he doesn't rely on Pixies. It's in connection with his prayers. The song is, I talk to Jesus every day. Well, you talk about important people that you say you know. Presidents and superstars of big television shows. Well, I know someone personally who's bigger than them all. And next to him, your superstars look mighty small. And I have a talk with him each day. And he's interested in every word I say. No secretary ever tells me he's been called away. I talk to Jesus every day. Well, I don't think that I'll ever be in any hall of fame. And the social register of wealthy folks might drop my name but my name is written in the book of life I'm proud to say and that's all that really matters anyway and I talk to Jesus every day and he's interested in every word I say no secretary ever tells me he's been called away I talk to Jesus every day I talk to Jesus every day We leave you with the African Children's Choir and Lord, I lift your name on high